You can't get to AI machine learning without good engineering, good production, and good data science ahead of it. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Merwin, Head of Growth Healthcare and Life Sciences Startups at AWS. Today, I'm welcoming you to a special episode of the pod where we've prepared a comprehensive journey through the world of AI and healthcare by pulling excerpts from recent episodes. We'll explore how startups are applying AI to improve care in various therapeutic areas, from musculoskeletal conditions and genomics to dentistry and cardiology. But it's not just about end solutions. We'll also dive into the often overlooked but critical data engineering and operational pipelines that make AI and machine learning possible. Learn how these innovators are sourcing data, cleaning it, preparing it, and training models to derive actionable insights. We'll also discuss the early steps of company formation, evidence generation, regulatory strategy, and how to earn trust in this high-stakes field. We'll start with an excerpt from episode number 55 from Sachin Patel, the CEO of Apixio. Apixio uses artificial intelligence to improve healthcare operations and outcomes. In this clip, we start with the basics, learning how we use AI to make predictions about the future and the need to stay grounded and keep attendant risks in mind because the stakes are so high in healthcare. I think in healthcare, what is of paramount importance is to use a measured approach. As I was alluding to earlier, you really need to be thoughtful. There's the term hallucinations and that's fine. That's more of a particular to chat GPT type of concept in the sense of that type of general large language model. But even if you're using other techniques or other ways in which you're making predictions or suggestion, you have to make sure that it's high fidelity. Like I was saying that it's, it makes sense for that workflow. And so being measured and being really thoughtful about the activity you're supporting, well, who is it impacting? If you're saying patients should take this medicine, that's pretty important. You should probably be pretty right on that. And you might want to work your way over to that and that's clinical, right? But if you're in the administrative sense, then recognize, hey, is one out of a thousand times my recommended action is wrong and the outcome is it impacts the payer and the provider by 10 cents an activity or something like that. That's okay. That's probably okay. If that hit rate is okay, if it's happening 500 out of a thousand times, probably not okay. So I would say measured and thoughtful approach is really important to being successful. And then as a second point, it's very important to make sure that those, even in the first, second example I gave, where maybe it's just a dollars and cents impact, that you have experts in the room that have been in healthcare for a long time that understand the market. Again, whether that's administrative, care delivery, clinical, whatever it may be, make sure that you have experts around the room because often we've seen this in the last few years, there's been companies that have started, unfortunately done testing and things like that where results were erroneous, which is the worst version of this. But you can think of the same example in AI. If you don't use enough data or the right data for that market or that particular geography, you may make a suggestion that actually is completely wrong as far as what activity should be taken on. So um, really, really important, I think, to have the right type of expertise around and folks that understand healthcare, which it seems like we're getting back to that point where that is all of a sudden now more important and, and the main thing. And I think that's great. Now that we've grounded ourselves a bit in the importance of developing AI responsibly, let's hear an exciting view of the future from Alex Zavaronkov, the founder and CEO of Insilico Medicine who uses AI to automate disease hypothesis formulation and drug target selection in automated labs in China. 
To hear more from Alex, tune into episode 56. I think in terms of the opportunities of generative rely in fully automated self-driving labs. So what we've done at Ancilico to prepare for this, we've built a massive giant robotics lab in Suzhou in China, where we've got six interconnected rooms where humans do not need to support the experiments, right? So uh, you worked for a company like that before. I think that was Stratios, right? Yeah. Or something yep. else. Yep. Yeah. So they were- They love these robotic cloud yeah. labs. <laughs> yeah. So they were one of the early pioneers in this, but it, A, wasn't fully automated. B, it wasn't AI driven. Those were kind of the early days. And in our case, we, of course, learned the best practices from that company and the Broad Institute and many others and decided to focus on target discovery to automate the process of formulating the disease hypothesis, picking the right target, and then validating this target very quickly. So I think in that area, you can actually get the feedback much faster than going with novel chemistry. And uh, we have a process where sample either the human tissue sample or animal tissue sample or organoid or human cells or animal cells go in, robot picks them up, uh, grinds it, microplates it, does quality control, you know, evaluates that there is no mycoplasma, no uh, fungus, etc., and passes that sample to another room. In that room, we've developed autonomous guided vehicles that pick the sample up and take multiple routes. So we take one route to the incubator, put part of the sample there so that it safely grows or stays there for the time that it takes to conduct the data extraction from another part of the sample. Part of the sample goes into the imaging station, so you get multiple types of imaging. So part of the sample gets destroyed, but you get a lot of valuable imaging data. Then part of the sample goes into the NGS prep room where robots automatically create multiple libraries for uh, omics extraction acquisition. So those omics at the baseline is whole genome sequencing, RNA-seq. So you measure gene expression, the entire transcriptome. You measure methylation. So we measure those methylation markers, small methyl groups that sit on DNA and regulate gene expression. And you get a few other data types. Then you give it to the sequencing machine. It produces those sequencing data types, non-duration uh, sequencing data types. And all that imaging plus omics goes into my AI. It makes decisions on which targets are important in that particular sample for a specific application automatically. So we reduce the experimental bias, but also you know, reduce and remove human bias because humans are very biased when making target choices. So an expert head of the therapeutic area will always know, you know, top 20 targets that they would like to go after or benchmark against and pathways. So we go away from that. We use more than 60 target discovery philosophies, prioritize the targets, pick the possible tool compounds for those targets where those tool compounds exist, automatically get them from the compound hotel, uncap them, put them on the liquid handler, prepare them for the transfer onto the samples from the incubator, and then incubate those samples from the incubator with those compounds at different concentrations for specified times, usually six hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, so that the sample absorbs the compound. And then we repeat the entire cycle. So we get many types of imaging, many times so omics, 
the data goes back into AI, and there AI gets either punished or rewarded for picking good or bad targets. And if it found some really interesting novel targets, uh, it demonstrate those targets to the scientists, and then human scientists go and prosecute those targets by doing knockout experiments, CRISPR experiments, and uh, single-cell experiments, so basically look much deeper to see if those targets are, are likely to work in that disease of interest, and also if they are commercially tractable, if they are normal, if they are druggable, uh, so do 360 analysis using our tools, and uh, then we might go after the program or not. So you basically train AI, but at the same time, you discover targets. And my kind of big vision is to try to miniaturize that and uh, place those robotics labs into hospitals in countries that never even aspired to do drug discovery, right? Uh, actually, I'll just also tell you the story. Targets are um, disease hypothesis are usually formulated in very, very few places in the world, right? So we're talking about Boston, number one mega hub for scientific knowledge creation and disease hypothesis formulation and target discovery. Then we get uh, the UK, city of Basel, so Switzerland, produces probably 20, 25% of those innovative therapeutics. Then you get France, then you get Germany, then you get Tokyo, then you get uh, Japan. And then now China has joined the race. So you've got Shanghai, which is an epicenter. You've got Suzhou, you've got uh, Beijing. But many countries are extremely resource rich, but they just lack those capabilities. And uh, in theory, if you put a robot with an AI on top of it, which is trained on the entire world in terms of how to discover targets and how to come up with those hypotheses, and this robot starts identifying the right drugs for the right patients, and at the same time starts doing target discovery, you can accelerate biomedical innovation globally quite dramatically. Most entrepreneurial journeys start with selecting the right co-founder and forging your path to product market fit. In this excerpt from episode 47, Dr. Gerson, the co-founder and CEO of Rad AI, a digital health company that provides AI-powered radiology solutions, shares his story about how he selected the right co-founder for him and developed and validated their initial business thesis for a digital health AI startup. Could you share a little bit about how you met and like the crystallization of this particular business thesis and getting that off the ground? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Jeff and I met when we were at a software camp together. So we were writing at the time, it was Ruby code and just really took a liking to one another. At the time, I was working on a different startup that was in the hardware space. So it was this idea of creating a network of smart, portable batteries. And I had thought about building that out and invited Jeff to join me on that journey, which we took through Y Combinator and raised some funds. And we were over in over 1,000 locations in San Francisco. So even to this day, when I mentioned the name Doblet, a lot of people are like, oh, wait, I've used that service when I was in San Francisco. And it was actually a really interesting idea. And I still am bullish on the concept. But I think the problem and the thing that we learned was that we were not experts in hardware. And when you do a hardware startup, you need someone that intimately understands hardware. You have to be much more intentional with hardware 
we treated hardware like software. And I think that was a big mistake for us because we kept running into these issues around the hardware not working. And so we did end up ultimately selling that to one of our international partners. But at the end of that, I was actually going for the first time was just going to go work somewhere like a normal person. That's what I had told my wife I was going to do, quite frankly. And then one day Jeff came to me and he was on a flight because he was doing overnight shifts in Greensboro as a radiologist. And he basically said, he was reading this paper, um, a, a research paper on AI and felt like the work that he had just done, like some of that could have been automated uh, using AI now that AI has kind of gotten to this point where it's becoming more and more useful. And so he came to me with this idea around how he thought we could have an impact in radiology, talked to me a little bit about, and this was the part that quite frankly convinced my wife, told me that there was one radiologist for like 10 million people in Malawi and how that was just like unacceptable and how if we could use AI to help essentially reduce the number of repetitive things radiologists needed to do, that that would allow them to have more time to do more exams or just maybe even just improve the quality of the exams by having AI help and augment the radiologist. And I kind of made the case to my wife about this and At first, she was not happy, but eventually she got on board. And that's how we really kicked off RAD AI. We saw a lot of folks that were focused on image analysis. And being a radiologist, Jeff was just, he just felt like that did not add any value. And it's funny because we went to our first potential partner, a, a radiology group, and we had a list of these 12 ideas. And we said, which of these ideas sound interesting? And there were a lot of them that they thought were interesting. But when we asked the question, how much would you pay for this? That's when they said, oh, you want us to pay for it. And that's usually, I think, the mismatch is like finding the sort of the economic buyer and then also making sure that the value lines up with what the expectations are. We found in that particular scenario, when we went through the exercise, there were a lot of things we felt like we could build relatively quickly and get out into the world. The thing that was the most complicated, and quite frankly, we didn't know if we could do or not, was what we ended up building, which is the automated impressions product, our first core product that Rad AI essentially invented. Like We invented that category. We thought it was something that if could be done and the radiology group at the time agreed, if you could do this, it would be immensely valuable. And that is something we would pay for. And so we took that as sort of, I mean, because that's the reality as a startup, if you can't provide a product that people are willing to pay for, then you're not going to be in business very long. So as much as, of course, we want to have an impact and improve patient lives, and those are all the things that come as a result of being a successful company, you have to first figure out the economics of how you can sustainably build products. And so we found that um, you know, for us, that first automated impressions product was a thing that resonated with a lot of folks. And so we set out to build it. And it took us about two and a half years to build that initial version of the product. And what was great was we had my co-founder, Jeff, he was the first user of the product. So when he was doing his overnight shifts, he would be using the product. And every time he used it, there were things that we needed to change and iterate on. 
And so we finally got it to the point where we're like, okay, this is a product that radiologists can use because Jeff was using it and he loved it. He said, this is great. It helps save me time. I'm not as burnt out because I'm not having to speak as much. All the things that we thought were valuable, if you can automate the impressions section of the radiology report, turns out you're essentially helping the radiologist do one third of the exam. And it's the part of the exam that actually requires the most cognitive load because you're having to synthesize and really think about the ordering and what you want to say. I'd argue, and this is what Jeff has said, it's probably the most important part of the report, just to make sure you get that right. Um, and so what we found there was as we did that, um, we discovered very quickly that after Jeff used it and he was great, or it was great for him, we turned five other radiologists onto it. And we were excited because we're like, great, we're going to have five new users. And within the first week, we lost four of the five users. And the fifth one was hanging on by a string, just like, I think out of maybe partially out of guilt that because he knows Jeff and is a friend, it was like, oh, I'll keep using this thing. But what we realized very quickly is that each radiologist has such a different style and just so unique in the way that they create their reports. And so we went back to the drawing board and tried to figure out like, what are all the things that with each radiologist, we interviewed them one by one to understand what are the things we could do. And ultimately, eventually all five became users, but it did take us, it was a cycle. We had to iterate over and over on a weekly basis to get them to finally be, become not just users. At this point, I would say not only are they users, but a lot of our customers say that, that they cannot practice radiology without our product. Like we, we very seldomly have any downtime. In fact, our first downtime happened recently, and it was the first time in two years that we had any downtime. And you can imagine people were really frustrated because now this has become like a really important part of their workflow. I'm sure, Jared, you know this intimately that the radiologist, the workflow, the workflow is so refined that any sort of deviation from what you're used to can really cause a lot of headaches. And so once you get used to something, and that's also why it's so hard to break into the workflow is because radiologists are already so accustomed to what they do, adding anything new in could really disrupt them. And so that's why we, and this is again, having a co-founder that's a radiologist and understands the way radiologists think and look at these things was instrumental because a lot of the things that he wanted to do to me were quite frankly counterintuitive because for me I in the beginning we talked a lot about whether or not the impression should be customized to radiologists or just a standard output and I always felt like if it's clinically correct you know probably shouldn't matter but Jeff was adamant that it needed to be customized and it turns out he was right because when it's customized to radiologists, it's a lot easier for them to look at it, proofread it, and sign off on it because it feels like them. Otherwise, they make so many edits to it that you end up not saving all that much time after all. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. We now hear from Dr. Carolyn Lamb of Us2AI, who joined us in episode 61 with her co-founder, James Hare. Us2AI is on a mission to democratize echocardiograms through AI, but Deploying AI to patients requires a rigorous approach to evidence generation. Us2AI is a leader in AI-assisted echocardiography and has conducted a series of trials around the world that provide a great blueprint for other entrepreneurs 
who are thinking about how to approach their evidence generation journey. When it comes to this, I'm, I'm just so proud and excited about the research. So one of the studies called OPERA um, is going to be a late-breaking trial result uh, in Amsterdam at the European Society of Cardiology meeting at the end of this month. So I'm afraid I can't give it all away in terms of the main results. However, the study itself um, and its design have been discussed in the public and especially in Glasgow, where the study was performed, included almost 800 patients and basically addressing the long echo waiting times that had accumulated during COVID and simply by also empowering nurses to do point of care echo assisted by AI. And one of the remarkable findings was that echo wait times were reduced. Now, that's not the main result I can't talk about, but the echo wait times were certainly reduced from one year. That's how long it takes to get an echo um, in the UK uh, to at least weeks, only weeks. And because this was so remarkable at the time, it was discussed at the highest levels in Glasgow, even up to the parliament level. So we were very, very proud um, to have these sort of first examples. Since then, we've also carried out a prospective study focused at the National Heart Center in Singapore and led by Dr. Huang Wei-Ting. And what she showed is she could use AI to teach complete novices. So this time they weren't even nurses. They just were completely non-medical background, never touched an echo probe, an ultrasound probe before. And they could be trained to do heart screening. And although there was an initial learning curve, they all managed to do it with 96% feasibility and taking initially about 30 minutes, but then putting that all the way down to an average of 11 minutes per scan. So you can imagine, right? Just novices using AI getting a heart scan and being able to accurately and predictably pick out whether there was heart failure. And so this was presented already and, and our manuscript is being reviewed at a journal. And then finally, we've kind of gone one step further in Tunisia in a study we've called the Cumin study. Again, the results have been presented at a major meeting and the manuscript is under review. But basically this time, we asked nurses to do echo screening or ultrasound screening of the heart at home, in patients' homes. And that's because with AI mobile echo, it's completely feasible to be able to go to patients' homes and do the heart screening there. And so we showed that in the human study, again, something we're very proud of. So this is the evidence generation uh, piece. We are now uh, carrying out a large multinational study involving five countries, including US, Canada, UK, Denmark, and Sweden. And we are now going into the community with AI Echo. That means these are not patients that have been the focus of all the prior studies. They're not patients with known heart disease, but the general community. And we are going into the community to screen them for heart disease. It's already started. We're listed on clinicaltrials.gov, the symphony trial. 
and super excited about this. The opera study Dr. Lim was just referring to has since been released and found that their AI-assisted echocardiography protocol decreased waiting times from 12 months to less than six weeks in Glasgow, Scotland, and that US2AI-interpreted heart ultrasound images are as effective as using a typical ultrasound machine operated by an expert in measuring the pumping action of the heart. This next excerpt is from episode 60 with Ophir Tons, the CEO and founder of Pearl. Pearl uses AI to power the future of dentistry with a real-time platform that automatically detects numerous conditions in dental x-rays. Any digital health startup seeking to introduce AI into the clinical workflow needs to think about regulatory clearances. Pearl had a unique regulatory strategy, pursuing 10 FDA clearances with a single submission. We learn why they did this and how innovators should think about their regulatory strategy when it comes to AI. Can you tell me a little bit about your regulatory strategy from company founding up until today? So it sounds like you're regulated as a medical device by the FDA. So how did you approach that? Did you bring on consultants or key members of the team? This is something that's really challenging for early stage companies in the space. So it'd be great to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, the strategies suffer a lot, spend a lot of money and hopefully get it done. <laughs> <laughs> Good strategy. Yeah, it's, it's basically what we and everyone else does. So yeah, so we have over 100 regulatory clearances now globally. So we could have a whole conversation about MDR clearance in the EU, which is a dramatically different effort than what we do here in the United States with the FDA. And then there's the PMDA in Japan, which is more similar, but we'll just focus on FDA for the moment. And yeah, it's a very involved effort. One of our first hires was the chief compliance officer who has done this kind of work before and brought on multiple firms and entities to help consult on the approach with the FDA and then that entirety of that process. Now, what we did was extremely bold and extremely unique in that we went for many clearances, like 10 clearances at one time with a single FDA submission. That's almost never done in this category, almost always one at a time. So we did make our lives difficult with that. In that. What was the reason for that decision? Why did you choose to do that? Well, we've had the capabilities built and we wanted to provide the real promise of AI to the industry, which is real-time patient-facing pathology detection for all radiographic modalities, for all age groups, and not provide a tenth or a fifth of that value prop. You need it for the solution cell, right? You need it to be able to show the whole promise of the solution instead of just having features piecemeal. Well, that's what you ideally do. Now, there's not a ton of competition, but there's some competition and they've had to go the one-by-one -one approach and it's always extremely limited because you're not able to provide the full value of what's possible. So uh, relative to the product that we wanted to put in market, we needed that clearance for all those things. And it definitely was an interesting process because we couldn't adhere to any of the statistical approaches that all the other FDA clearances went through for radiographic AI. We actually brought in the Dean of the School of Statistics from Harvard and Stanford to help advise on the statistical approach and convince the FDA that statistical approach was statistically valid um, when looking at so many detections at one time. We had folks from the FDA tell us, you could have probably gotten this a year ago, but we were like confused. So like it delayed us by as much as a year. But we did get it done. We were successful and we got everything cleared in one submission. And that's been great for the company. 
but it was a very involved process and a very expensive process and a very stressful one because the reality is if you do what we do and many other companies increasingly do this kind of work and other forms of medicine, like it's all or nothing. Like you cannot commercialize this product. You cannot market this product in the United States without regulatory clearance. Now we're a caddy device too. So, you know, there's requirements associated with that. We have to show you're either at or above human level performance. Now you compound that with the fact that the FDA is not extremely buttoned up as it relates to how they think about or review AI. They don't actually have formal guidance. They have like guidance around creating guidance, you know? So a lot of it is collaborative, but it's also an agency that is very strict on following very particular protocols. And AI presents very unique challenges to a regulatory agency that are just not present in other forms of medicine or any other types of clearances because it's constantly evolving and it's just, it's learning and it's a different kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's definitely an area where it had to be successful in our case. And we had to invest heavily in that effort. Artificial intelligence and machine learning can only be deployed in well-architected data environments. Let's learn about what this means and how any company can better enable their data sets for AIML. From Mike Tarselli, the Chief Scientific and Knowledge Officer at TetraScience, who joined us in episode 53. So TetraScience has a pretty bold vision. TetraScience is looking to solve humanity's grand challenges by accelerating and improving scientific outcomes. And you might ask, how do we do this? And how are we different from other companies? Well, we, much like everybody right now, uh, you, you can't really walk down the street without seeing an article about chat GPT or about large language models or about language models or machine learning that allows you to look at new innovations or see through your data or learn new trends. Well, we don't do those models, but we provide and prepare the data that goes into those models that feeds them. We like to look at it as a pyramid. So if you think about a four level pyramid, you've got one on the bottom that says, hey, data integration, where the heck is my data? Bring it in. Middle layer sort of data engineering do something with that data, make it into schemas, make it so that you can actually interpret it, give it consistent headers. Middle, top middle level is data science. Okay, you've got the data. It's in nice curated format. Let's actually look at it across, do some statistical models, do some comparisons, bucket it, gate it. And then the top is that AI ML. But we posit that you can't actually get to the top. You can't get to AI machine learning without good engineering, good production, and good data science ahead of it. Speaking of changing landscapes and industry trends, and you alluded to this at the very beginning when you were talking about AIML, what are you doing exactly with customers today to enable AIML? Excellent. So we have a few things. Uh, with one of our large biotech clients, we're currently preparing their data and loading it into a specific place so they can apply a large language model to it. This tends to be a lot of chromatography data and a lot of flow cytometry data. So they are currently taking that, extracting the metadata terms, getting the models built, and then you know training them so people can ask questions of their data, which is awesome because I'm sure you know this too, but for the last, let's call it decade, people have been saying, why can't I talk to my data like I can talk to Siri? Fair. Well, it's getting there pretty, pretty soon. Another thing we're doing is we're doing a lot of biomanufacturing and bioprocessing runs and preparation of data. So we're taking the headers and the consistent tags that come out of runs that say, okay, cell was done at this time with this shape and has this density and um, turbidity, et cetera. And then it helps them to figure out and plan their campaigns for when they actually take it down, whether it's got the right population of cells, et cetera. 
both by marrying all that data and also by applying the model on top of it. Um, and one other example I'll give you is we're doing a very deep dive right now to our chromatography data systems data because we find that it's the bread and butter of a lot of groups, right? Chemists use it, HTS people use it, quality control uses it, batch release. So finding out what you can learn from really deep data sets on, on thermochromelian or waters and power, and then looking at, you know, when is a peak and outlier? When is a retention time bad? What's your tolerance on that? Um, wh what's the peak shape supposed to look like? Um, what's the area under the curve? What do you expect? Can you do automated baseline correction? Can you take that data and can you find out a better way to run a method instead of a person sitting there and literally going, 10 minutes, go to here, 15 minutes, go to here. Um, there's ways to train AIs to do that. And since we have the data, we can help them to do that. AI ML systems generate predictions which can improve healthcare. But for these benefits to be similarly observed across a diverse range of patient populations, the data that trains these models must be representative of those patient populations themselves. We'll now turn to episode 46, when Kurt Medeiros and Barry Wark from Ovation, a leading provider of genomic data for the life sciences industry, shared how they make drug development more equally beneficial for a diverse range of patient populations. Y'all have mentioned a few times, and I would be remiss if I didn't call out the importance of diversity and maybe the lack thereof in significant healthcare data sets. Why does this matter? It's a great question. We know it matters because the majority of data used in drug development and approvals comes from homogenous populations, typically of European ancestry, and from patients demographically that seek care at academic medical centers. In addition, again, the majority of genomes that have ever been sequenced come from this same population. The result is that the data we're working with to understand diseases, to develop therapies, and to try and understand how those therapies are going to work in the real world is working from data sets that aren't as diverse as the population that those therapies serve. So it would be surprising almost if those therapies worked universally across populations of more diverse genetic ancestry. There are some great efforts already starting to tackle this problem. The African Genome Variation Project, starting to catalog the genomic profiles of individuals. The Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, working on a framework to store and analyze and share genomic data among international researchers, right? Again, trying to build up the diversity of these data sets. Because the reality is without this diverse data, drug developers are going to continue to struggle in stratifying diverse populations, in developing therapies that are targeted to a patient's genetic makeup. And clinicians are going to have similar challenges understanding how those therapies are going to affect their patients and their populations. I'd be curious from your viewpoint, how has Ovation overcome these challenges and how will y'all continue to help improve health equity by leveraging data to promote more equitable and inclusive systems of care? Wonderful question. And I want to start by emphasizing that the current lack of imbalance is not necessarily one of intent, but one of possibility. And the industry as a whole, many organizations are working to address this challenge and many amazing discoveries have come from the data that already exists. That said, Ovation is, we believe, uniquely positioned to address this with 
the vast biobank that we've built. It comes from a highly diverse population. And we already have 1.4 million samples from more than 540,000 individuals consented for research. And because these samples come from our network that is composed of independent diagnostic labs across the country, we have a high diversity in non-European populations, both geographically and in terms of race and ethnicity. And this diversity comes from the fact that the leftover samples were taken during the COVID pandemic and from infectious disease testing and many therapeutic areas where diverse populations are mixed in the clinical population. So we now have representation from 82% of zip codes in the U.S. And as we're moving towards more granularity in our ability to characterize these populations based on the data that we have, based on information that comes from the clinical workflow, and based on the genomics, we believe that we can help researchers more precisely target therapies for well-defined segments of patients rather than adopting just a sort of one-size-fits-all approach. Garbage in means garbage out, and many innovators overlook the importance of screening noise and other poor quality signals from their datasets before training models. In episode 50, Dr. Phil Wagner, the founder and CEO of Sparta Science, a movement health intelligence company, shared how they use force plate data to improve the screening and diagnosis of musculoskeletal conditions and care navigation. Let's talk a little bit more about the work you've done on digital biomarkers. And one misconception many have is, is, you know, as soon as I get access to some streaming data sets, I'm going to throw them into an AI model and it's just going to spit out something useful and I'm going to change the world and make everything better, right? And then you get into it and you learn that there are a lot of key decisions you need to make, whether it's supervised, unsupervised, the, the training data, how you process and prepare that training data, um, not to mention the investments on inference and just how to actually make it happen. Can you share any lessons you've learned on your journey just on taking that raw data exhaust and converting it into something that's clinically useful? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that is a common issue, right? Is you collect data and you expect to dump it somewhere. It's just going to sit out this magical conclusion that you can automatically take action off. I think most folks don't realize that the majority of the data scientist's job is cleansing, wrangling, organizing all that information right? That's the brunt of the work to be able to actually have conclusions that are ultimately relevant and build those models. I think one of the key things we learned is we had to implement, and this is where most of our IP is around, filters within the collection process to actually automatically eliminate noise. And so as that's coming in, how can the software identify those areas of noise to trim those out to really limit the bad data coming in, right? There's a great saying, right? Garbage in, garbage out, right? How do we make sure that we're limiting that garbage that's coming in and noise so there's better signals that can be leveraged against each other? And then the other piece is that the reliability of the data um, and the metrics is so critical because if the metric itself is unreliable, you're chasing your tail. You're never really going to be able to find any clear patterns. Mm. But before we get to the inference, you got to first make sure that the data is filtered properly. And then second, make sure that the metric itself is reliable enough to decide, okay, if it's all of a sudden variable, that's a signal. 
as opposed to it's variable because the metric itself is just random. Yeah, and not a baseline shift or something. Exactly, exactly. And so that's it. I think that kind of stuff is really boring and a lot of times overlooked, right? The reliability piece of the metric. And so that's a real important piece that we've always been focused on for the metrics that, that our sensor produces, but also any incoming metrics that come in. Deploying AI in healthcare requires a careful balancing of benefits versus risks. However, it is possible to be too conservative with our approach by not deploying AI in situations that have low clinical risk and that have the potential to reduce load and improve capacity of the healthcare system. Dolly Kalani, the CTO of Lifen, who develops data interoperability technology to facilitate cooperation between all stakeholders in the healthcare system, talked through this risk management challenge in episode 59. It's only a matter of uh, risk management, right? A lot of the players are just saying, oh, I don't want to be an early adopter. I'm trying to save lives. I'm willing to sit out and wait a little bit for the dust to settle, the regulations to happen, the clarification of the interpretation of the rules and all that stuff. And then I'm happy to jump into the fray with the, I don't want to be the first one. I don't want the second one. I'll be happy to Listen, be on the back. The first thing they teach doctors is do no harm, right? It's the first part of the Hippocratic Oath. And so there's inherent conservatism in our, in the health system. However, there's something what I like to call a clinical opportunity cost. By not adopting innovation, are you potentially not giving the best clinical care and therefore not getting the best clinical outcomes compared to others who have adopted that innovation? And I think that is something we don't talk about enough because as a motivator to actually take that risk management approach, because if you are preventing or reducing clinician burnout, that's just better for the health system and better for patients. Yeah. I'm going to jump on that and actually share an example. Great. This is what I want. Some examples now of where you've made a difference and let's let's get some of those. For example, this burnout problem, we've seen it with um, medical assistants and all these people who I mentioned were dealing with paper and all that stuff. In order to simplify their lives, we developed an AI that was able to take a PDF document, a scanned document in some way, and be able to identify who's the patient, who's the doctor, what's the diagnosis, the date of the diagnosis, what's happening, all these informations in a way that prevented them from typing the information again. And we had questions early on saying, oh, what if the AI actually made mistakes and this and that? Conservatism, do no harm. And the solution has been very interesting. We said the AI is not substituting for the human. The AI is a co-pilot. The AI is there to help pre-seal information and allow the human actor in this space to double check and make sure that the information is correct and confirm if it's correct or not. And that saved tens of thousands of hours of work because we have been able to deliver this co-pilot or sidekick for all the users in order to extract the information with high certainty. But the human is the one who's actually bearing the responsibility, the final say. We'll finish up today with an excerpt from episode 58 with Akalish Bapu, the co-founder and CEO of DeepScribe, a fast, accurate, scalable, and secure AI medical scribe. He highlights the importance of being customer-obsessed and creating solutions that will earn trust from healthcare systems about the potential for AI to meaningfully impact their organizations and patients. So uh, when we get off the phone, you go to your next meeting or two, you get home tonight, you're making dinner. What question are you going to wish that I asked you when you're thinking back on this interview? 
That is a great question. I would say what keeps me up at night about the way healthcare is going. I think if you asked me this question a couple of years ago, I would say that healthcare has had this trajectory of being relatively closed to new tech. And it was a good reason for why that was the case. With tech, you add a lot of risk and no IT team or system wants to add that level of risk. But now that you have this just, I guess, 180 in terms of where AI used to be and where AI is now, I think you're seeing a lot of health systems and practices rush to adopt AI in their practices. And that's super exciting for healthcare. But what keeps me up at night is figuring out how to really nail customer delight. I think I've still seen a lot of products out there that throw AI at something, but don't actually solve a use case. And so over the next year, we're probably going to see a lot of customers or a lot of physicians try products and realize that it didn't solve their need or realize that it wasn't designed properly um, and stop using it and probably be burned from those products and burned from not just those products, but that area of the business or area of the market or area of opportunity. And so I hope that companies that are designing for healthcare that are able to have a distribution spend a lot of time really thinking about what makes or breaks a customer experience in healthcare. And if we can get that on the same level as some of the other industries where customer experience is at front and center and really align incentives with the end user that's a clinician and take this sort of new interest in AI, which I see as a chance at redemption and really capitalize on it to deliver great experiences that continue to keep physicians excited about AI and continue to adopt solutions like DeepScribe or other AI-based solutions out there that continue to automate more and more of the workflow. I think we're in this really unique opportunity right now. And we should be careful, not just we as an DeepScribe, but we as in any healthcare startup should be careful in ensuring that we don't burn physicians' interests by delivering a product that is either too early to market or doesn't solve a customer problem. Thanks for joining us today for the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you want to get in touch with AWS, please check out our show notes where you can find a link. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to share it with your colleagues and friends. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings wherever you listen to podcasts. We love hearing feedback from our listeners, especially about new formats like what we tried today. So please don't hesitate to get in touch. Again, you'll find all the details in our show notes. We're sorry we missed the last few weeks, but we should be back to our regular weekly cadence. So see you next week.